we come to chapter 10, and this is called The Unapprehendability of the Enlightened. So to apprehend is to take hold of something, like a police will apprehend a burglar, or uh, if a, uh, the mind might um, uh, understand uh, the meaning of something, you might apprehend the, the meaning of a, uh, of a statement. So uh, unapprehendable means something that can't be taken hold of, can't be um, sort of claimed or... Um, grasped or, or touched even. Unfortunately, the Oxford English Dictionary does not have the word unapprehendability in it. This is a great shortcoming of the OED. But, um, I haven't... Well, uh, <laughs> it both exists and doesn't exist. Uh, it neither exists nor does not exist. It exists as, as a symbolic marks on this piece of paper. But that's what it means even if the OED hasn't got it in its pages. So that which can't be taken hold of. So far we have delved into many of the subjective qualities of the realization of Nibbana, what it's like from the inside. We will now look at how the enlightened state may be appreciated from the outside. In other words, when an unenlightened person meets an enlightened one, what is it that they meet? And the first reading is uh, from the um, Book of the Fours in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical teachings. And this is a, a very uh, very significant sutta because uh, I'm sure Buddhist scholars have got much more information on this, but uh, my understanding is that uh, this particular sutta and the statement that the Buddha makes in it is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why we call him the Buddha. That's why we use that that particular term uh, for him, um, uh, because uh, you know, mostly in his own life he was known as Pagawan, uh, the Blessed One, or, the, or referred to himself as the Tathagata, uh, various different ways. But um, this is a, 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 an occasion where he uses the word uh, Buddha or Bhutto, and um, that seems to have come down through the ages as the the main uh, way of uh, re uh, referring to him. So <clears throat> it's describing a um, an encounter between the Buddha and a Brahmin. At one time, the Blessed One was traveling by the road between Kata and Setavya, and the Brahmin Dona was traveling by that road too. He saw in the Blessed One's footprints wheels with a thousand spokes, with rims and hubs all complete. So he saw the footprints. Where the Buddha had walked in the in the dust of the, of the pathway of the road, and seeing the footprints, he thought, "This is amazing." You know, <clears throat> the uh, because the Buddha was supposed to have had these uh, wheel marks on the soles of his feet, that the lines on his on his uh, feet had these uh, sort of round wheel-like marks with a thousand spokes. Then he thought, "It is wonderful. It is marvelous. Surely this can never be the footprint of a human being." Then the Blessed One left the road and sat down at the root of a tree, cross-legged, with his body held erect and mindfulness established before him. Then the Brahmin Dona, who was following up the footprints, saw him sitting at the, at the root of the tree. The Blessed One inspired trust and confidence, his faculties being stilled, his mind quiet and attained to supreme control and serenity. 
a royal tusker, self-controlled and guarded by restraint of the sense faculties. So the, the Buddha had uh, already left the road and, and gone off to the to uh, sit under the shade of a tree beside the road. So then Dona was kind of following these footprints along and saw that they, they left the road and then saw the, the Buddha sitting under this tree. So the Brahmin went up to him and asked, Sir, are you a god? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a heavenly angel? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a spirit? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a human being? No, Brahmin. Then, sir, what indeed are you? Brahmin, the defilements by means of which, through my not having abandoned them, I might be a god, a Brahma, or a heavenly angel, a Deva, or a spirit, a Yaka, or a human being, have been abandoned by me, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, and are no more subject to future arising. Just as a blue or red or white lotus born in the water grows in the water and stands up above the water untouched by it, so too I, who was born in the world and grew up in the world, have transcended the world, and I live untouched by the world. Remember me as one who is awakened. And the Pali for that uh, is uh, Buddha, or the actual Pali in the text is Buddhosmi, which is Buddho, apostrophe, asmi, meaning uh, as me is the, uh, the first person singular of uh, to, uh, to be, I am. Uh, and so uh, uh, he says, you remember me as one who is awakened, buddho. Uh, and the word uh, buddho or buddha means, uh, means awake. And that uh, actually, um, even in some Slavic, we've got some Slavic people. Any Russian speakers here? Russian speakers, but apparently the word Buddha in I think in Russian, but in, certainly in some Slavic languages, also means wake up. Any Slavs here? No, we haven't. But our, anyway, by one of our uh, our East European Sangha members said, you know, this means like when you need to get up in the morning, like wake up. It's like Buddha, Buddha, get up. <laughs> it's time to wake up. A similarly unique and illuminating exchange occurred in more recent times at Ajahn Chah's monastery, Wat Nong Bapong, in the 1970s. And so these two readings come from a little book of Ajahn Chah's teachings called No Ajahn Chah. It was put together by Bhikkhu Gambiro, who was, um, he and I went forth as monks on the same night at Wat Bapong, so he's my Dharma litter mate. Kind of tw Dhamma twin. Uh, he lives in Taiwan now. He's done for many, many years. And uh, he's the first person to translate a lot of Ajahn Chah's teachings into Chinese. And then he did a little book of Ajahn Chah's similes called A Tree in the Forest, and also this little book of uh, other brief statements and comments of uh, Lung Po Chah called No Ajahn Chah. So this is a pa uh, little uh, vignette that you, uh, you find on the back cover of No Ajahn Chah. A visiting Zen student asked Ajahn Chah, How old are you? Do you live here all year round? I live nowhere, he replied. There is no place you can find me. I have no age. To have age, you must exist. And to think you exist is already a problem. Don't make problems. Then the world has none either. 
don't make a self. There's nothing more to say. So uh, <coughs> Ajahn Chah was, was uh, very fond of the uh, Zen teachings, as I mentioned, that Ajahn Buddhadasa had translated uh, a few Zen teachings into Thai. So they had the Zen teaching of Huang Po and also the, um, the Sutra of, of Hui Neng, um, Ajahn Buddhadasa had, had put into to Thai language. So Ajahn Chah was very, very fond of those. So he thought, a Zen student, okay, they can take the straight scoop. <laughs> And then uh, another passage from the uh, the same book. This is the epigraph, like at the, at the front of the book. Once there was a layman who came to Ajahn Chah and asked him who Ajahn Chah was. Ajahn Chah, seeing that the spiritual development of the individual was not very advanced, pointed to himself and said, this, this is Ajahn Chah. On another occasion, Ajahn Chah was asked the same question by someone else. This time, however, Seeing that the questioner's capacity to understand the Dhamma was higher, <coughs> Ajahn Chah answered by saying, Ajahn Chah, there is no Ajahn Chah. So can you understand why someone who is committed to speaking the truth, like the Buddha, when asked, are you a human being? He says, no. So the Buddha cannot lie. You know, the other day I was mentioning this, um, the uh, uh, nine things that a, a, an Arahant cannot do. And uh, one of them is that they can't, they can't tell a lie. So when somebody asks the Buddha, are you a human being? He says, no. So, uh, but then he qualifies it or speaks of it saying, just like a lotus that's uh, born in the water and grows up from the water. He says, uh, <clears throat> uh, so too I, who was born in the world and grew up in the world, have transcended the world and I live untouched by the world. So he, there's a human body and he had parents in uh, Kapilavatu, uh, Queen Mahamaya and King Sudodna and uh, <coughs> Mahapajapati, his aunt who, who raised him. But uh, that's only talking about the body and the personality. And so that uh, he absolutely truthfully, uh, looking, uh, looking right at uh, the Brahmin Bona and says, no, I'm not, I'm not a human being, without telling a lie. So this is, um, in a way, it's like speaking from the other side of the, the shore. <laughs> it's like, speaking from the island, like he's uh, speaking from that place of being Dhamma. Uh, and so that to say, you know, I am a human being is in a way to uh, indicate the uh, identification with the five khandhas. And, and this, this chapter uh, deals with this a lot. We'll come later on to uh, the, uh, one of the most significant sutta readings, the, the dialogue between this uh, monk called Anuradha and the Buddha. And then similarly, Ajahn Chah, you know, he's a he's a monk. Can't, he's not supposed to tell lies, you know, and has the reputation of being an arahant. You know, cannot cannot tell a lie. And says there is no Ajahn Chah. So sitting there, right in front of the, of the person, but uh, that's also uh, speaking from that that place of being Dhamma. That uh, is saying, well, you know, everything that you think of Ajahn Chah as being is not it. So. Your your idea of what a what a person is uh, is fundamentally baseless. It's it's not a, a correct perception. So, from that level of understanding, it's a perfectly true statement. There is no Ajahn Chah. <coughs> there was, um, I remember in this very hall when uh, <coughs> back in the early days of Amravati, Lumpur Sumedho, um giving a, a, a dhamma talk. Uh, this used to. Uh, 
before the temple was built, we had a uh, the old school gymnasium was the, the Dhamma Hall, but it was very uh, very cold and drafty, and so after a few years, we we stopped using it. And this sala was used for all of the community gatherings and teachings and everything. So Lumpur was giving a, a Dhamma talk here in the sala, and <clears throat> and uh, and he was talking about this whole quality of of existing or not existing, and uh, sitting up on the Dhamma seat, he said. Yeah, and watch very carefully because I'm going to stop existing. And then he just sit there. Did you see it? <laughs> I'm back again. Tomatoes returned. Now I'll do, I'll do it again. Watch carefully. I'm going to stop existing. It was quite, you know, Lumpur was very playful in that uh, in that way, and uh, but also being absolutely honest. That, okay, I'm going to stop existing. Did you get it? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's uh, he said, "Did you think I was going to evaporate?" So that's not it. It's it's to do with the way that the the mind uh, takes hold of the moment and identifies or doesn't identify with with perceptions. So does that make sense? Speak up if it doesn't. Very good. <clears throat> From these few brief exchanges, and also bearing in mind Ajahn Chah's autobiography, um, which we mentioned back in Chapter 5, that was when he was going to be given a title by the, uh, the king and the um, Sangha authorities in Thailand. He had to uh, submit a, a biography of all his educational um, qualifications and achievements and, and such like. And uh, Normally this runs to quite a few pages of... Um, Details about you know, where you've been living and what, who you've studied with and, and what you've what books you've written and such like, and uh, and they kept pestering him and he kept uh, not giving them his uh, his his um, personal details or his autobiography, and so they kept badgering him and, and asking over and over again and eventually he sent this two line statement, which said, <clears throat> sometimes there's rain and there's no thunder, sometimes there's thunder and there's no rain. That was it. <laughs> that's Ajahn Chah's autobiography. <laughs> now you might think that's just a completely weird thing to say, but I, I did ask about this, um, and it, apparently it is a, an expression in the northeast of Thailand. So when there's thunder and there's no rain, it's someone like who's very sort of loud or full of themselves, who think there comes there's somebody special, really important. You don't you know who I am? <laughs> you know, that's that kind of a. There's a lot of thunder, but there's no rain. You know, there's a lot of noise but it doesn't produce anything that can actually help the crops to grow. Sometimes there's rain, there's someone who is really worthwhile and is helpful and kind and, and useful, and, uh, but there's, not a lot, there's no thunder, they don't make a big noise. So that it's not a completely wacky statement. It was a, and so um, Ajahn Chah was in a sense saying, look, you want to hear, you know, you're asking for all my thunder, that, you know, that, that sometimes there's rain but there's no thunder. Here's the absence of the thunder. So that's it. I didn't realize that. I didn't find that out until a year or two ago. So, from these few brief exchanges, also bearing in mind Ajahn Chah's autobiography, one can deduce that one cannot reckon the issue in terms of, quote-unquote, meeting another person. 
All of our familiar handholds on identity and personality are called into question. The following passage is another very well-known and much-quoted instance of this principle. The story so far is that the bhikkhu Vakali has fallen gravely ill and the Buddha has come from his dwelling in, at the squirrel's sanctuary in the bamboo grove near Rajagaha to pay him a visit. The Buddha asks him, Vakali, uh, how he's doing and after recounting to the master that his sickness is worsening, he expresses the one regret remaining in his heart. And this passage comes from the, uh, the Khandavaga, the um, Connected Discourses about the Five Khandas, uh, section 22 in the uh, Connected Discourses, the Sangita. So Venerable Vakali says, For a long time, Venerable Sir, I have wanted to come and see the Blessed One, but I haven't been fit enough to do so. Enough, Akali, says the Buddha. Why do you want to see this filthy body? One who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma. For it is when one sees the Dhamma that they see me. And it is when they see me that they see the Dhamma. How do you conceive this, Vakali? Is material form permanent or impermanent? And the Buddha went on to repeat the discourse on selflessness, the Anatalakana Sutta, which he had given to the group of five bhikkhus after the Enlightenment. The key phrase in the, the exchange with Vakali, the key phrase in Pali reads, Yo ko Vakali dhammang pasati, so mang pasati. Yo mang pasati, so dhammang pasati. The ancient commentary says on this, Here the Blessed One shows himself as the Dhamma body, as stated in the passage, quote, The Tathagata, great king, is the Dhamma body, it's uh, Dhammakaya. For the ninefold supramundane Dhamma is called the Tathagata's body. Even though this exact statement cannot be traced in the Pali Canon, that the Tathagata is the Dhamma body, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi suggests that it might be a mis misquotation of the Aganya Sutta, which is in the Diga Nikaya, where it says, This designates the Tathagata, the body of Dhamma, Dhammakaya, that is, the body of Brahma, or become Dhamma, that is, become Brahma. That's from the Aganya Sutta, Sutta number 27 in the Diga Nikaya. Both of these passages are echoed somewhat in the following exaltation of Venerable Mahakachana. And this is from the uh, Majima Nikaya, Sutta number 18. For knowing, the Blessed One knows. Seeing, he sees. He is vision. He is knowledge. He is the Dhamma. He is the Holy One. He is the Sayer, the Proclaimer, the Elucidator of Meaning, the Giver of the Deathless, the Lord of the Dhamma, the Tathagata. This gives us a little more to go on, but since the Dhamma itself is classically designated in the sparest of terms, quote, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards to be experienced by each wise person for themselves, there is still very little here to grasp by way of tangible characterization, and quite deliberately so. If we think we'll have more to play with with the phrase the, quote, ninefold supramundane Dhamma is called the Tathagata's body, we will again be disappointed. Those nine refer to the four paths and their fruitions, so uh, the path to Sotapanna, uh, 
to stream entry, to uh, once returner, non-returner, and to arahatship. So the, those nine refer to the four paths, the four fruitions, and to Nibbāna, the states of mind established in wisdom and purity, not any kind of substance or personal characteristic. So this uh, exchange with Vakali, this was a, a um, very, very common um, uh, feature in Lumpur Chah's teachings, and uh, he would uh, use that um, uh, exchange over and over again. Uh, one who sees the Dhamma sees me, one who sees me sees the Dhamma. And that, uh, particularly because in, in, uh, in Thailand, there's, uh, and in Asia generally, there's a very devotional relationship to the teacher, that um, the, uh, the teacher is held in a very, very uh, sort of high and exalted uh, position. So, for example, if we were in Thailand, yeah, only a person who is completely incapable of sitting on the floor would actually be sitting on a chair. They wouldn't, you wouldn't, no lay people would dream of sitting on the same level as uh, someone who's in the role of teaching. Not to intimidate. You know. <laughs> if you want to be, if you feel intimidated, that's okay. But it would be completely inconceivable. Like in, uh, in uh, if uh, say if Ajahn Chah was sitting here, there would be you know, the uh, the probably the monks and the nuns thinking they're sitting on chairs. They're sitting on chairs. What is they're sitting on chairs? You can't sit up there because of that um, tendency to project uh, and to. Um, hold up the, the teaching into a very, very high position. Then uh, Ajahn Chah, like uh, uh, other very uh, accomplished teachers, would always be trying to deflect that kind of devotion. And, uh, and he, he was uh, amazing how he used to, to do it, because he was a very compelling sort of magnetic personality as well. But he somehow, over and over and over again, managed to, to say, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> Don't look at me, look at yourself. And... Uh, in various uh, uh, different ways, he, he managed to, to do that. Uh, and when people would, would ask or say, you know, you, uh, uh, are you enlightened? He would say, well, don't ask whether I'm enlightened. You know, ask yourself why you're not. <laughs> or that, uh, you know, or they say, uh, you know, uh, how, uh, how can you recognize an enlightened being? And he'd say, well, it takes one to know one. You know, he'd always sort of keep handing it back to you to answer your own questions or... or he would sort of some in mysterious and, and brilliant ways he'd sort of deflect it from um, himself. Or if people tried to be kind of flattering, then you'd really get creamed. You know, so you're trying to sort of impress him with how much you adore him or how wonderful you think he is. You get you get well. He was he was unpredictable, but he would flatten people quite uh, quite summarily. See, he wasn't looking for praise or flattery or to be to be liked or loved or. Um, that, uh, like a really good teacher, he would say, see that the point of the dynamic of listening to the to the teaching is not to think the teacher is wonderful, but to change your mind, <laughs> to to help the listeners to be liberated. That's that's the point of it. So he would use this teaching quite often and actively to to um, in in a sense embody that. Don't look at me. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, if you're seeing the Dhamma, you're seeing you're seeing what I am. So don't don't, don't get distracted by this person up here, but uh, rather uh, seeing the the Dhamma. And then the, another of the the um, um, teachings that uh, was he referred to a lot is um or you know, echoes that same thing. I'll I'll read in a moment. So just to uh, carry on with this little passage. 
So later Buddhist traditions have laid great emphasis on the Dharmakaya as the most universal and refined of the three kayas of the Buddha. So this is in the northern tradition. You get various texts that talk about these three bodies of the Buddha. The Nirmanakaya, which is the physical body, the Sambhogakaya, the body of bliss or the subtle etheric body, and then Dharmakaya, the universal and timeless body, the absolute aspect of the Buddha's mind, unborn and omniscient. Extensive and grandiloquent, uh, extensive and grandiloquent descriptions exist of its nature and, the, and qualities, but the texts of the Southern School are remarkably quiet on the matter. It's also interesting that uh, you have this uh, very large uh, movement in Thailand, this uh, very fa famous, infamous monastery, Dhammakaya, uh, Wat uh, Dhammakai, um, that is uh, very influential but also quite uh, controversial. Uh, and they speak of the Dhammakaya as a kind of, um, uh, like in a, a sort of theistic way almost, and that the meditation practice is, uh, is based around the uh, Dhammakaya. And so it's, uh, um, it's now, at least within the Thai Buddhist sphere, a somewhat loaded term. So in terms of the teachings, it's quite uh, a, um, it does have this, these, these places where it's mentioned, and also in the questions of King Melinda that I'll read in a minute, you do have these places where it is mentioned. And it says, you know, this, is the, this designates the Sutagata, the body of Dhamma, Dhammakaya. Um, but this particular group has taken... You know, one or two statements like that and turned it into a whole sort of, uh, religion. <laughs> and they have some, some very, very strange uh, views and practices as well uh, that I won't go into, but they, they, there's a, a, um, a major uh, subject of discussion and contention in sort of Thai uh, religious politics. The, uh, the passage from the Melinda Panha, which is related, is... In, and this is uh, the questions of King Melinda, translated by I.B. Horner, my esteemed relative. Her father and my grandfather were brothers. And this comes from the, uh, the chapter called The Cutting Off of Perplexity. And this is the, the dialogue between uh, King Melinda and uh, a, a venerable Nagasena who was a, a, a very eloquent and knowledgeable monk of his time. The king said, Reverend Nagasena, is there the Buddha? Yes, sire, there is the Lord. But is it possible, revered Nagasena, to point to the Buddha and say that he is either here or there? So this uh, was about two or three hundred years after the Buddha's time. So, uh, <clears throat> but is it possible, revered Nagasena, to point to the Buddha and say that he is either here or there. Sire, the Lord has attained final Nibbāna in the element of Nibbāna that has no substrate remaining for future birth. It is not possible to point to the Lord and say that he is either here or there. Make a simile. King said, okay, explain that. What do you think about this, sire? When the flame of a great burning mass of fire has gone out, and the Pali for that is atang gata, gone out or gone home, set like the sun, which is whose kinsman the Buddha was, 
when a great burning mass of fire has gone out, is it possible to point to that flame and say that it is either here or there? Oh no, revered sir, that flame has stopped, it has disappeared. And the Pali for that is apanyating gata, cannot be designated, even as there is no way of reckoning the Lord by any one of the five khandhas. Even so, sire, the Lord has attained final Nibbana in the element of Nibbana that has no substrate remaining for future birth. It is not possible to point to the Lord who has gone home. And again, that's uh, Atangata. So the, the word, the Pali for the fire going out and what she translates as um, the Lord uh, has gone home. Uh, and to say that he is either here or there. But, sire, it is possible to point to the Lord by means of the body of Dhamma. And that again is Dhamma Kayena. Uh, the body of Dhamma. For Dhamma, sire, was taught by the Lord. So you can take that passage and uh, you can say, well, it's the Dhamma teachings, the words that the Buddha um, spoke, that is what lives on. Or you can um, read it as Dhamma, as the actuality of, uh, it's sort of the fundamental nature of the way things are, rather than the verbal Dhamma teachings, but the Dhamma as the fabric of reality itself. For the Dhamma Sire was taught by the Lord. You are very dexterous, revered Nagasena. You are dexterous. That's the, the king signs off by saying, You are dexterous. You are wise. You are clever with your words, revered Nagasena. And also, yeah, I.B. Horner makes it that the, the, um, in the footnote, she also refers to that same passage in the Diganikaya, that, uh, where this Dhammakaya, um, as an epithet of the Buddha, is, uh, is mentioned. It's also a synonym, there's Dhamma Buddha, which means born of the Dhamma, or of the Dhamma nature. Buddha is a, 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 a realm of birth. Dhamma Buddha, which is in the commentary of the verses of the elder monks. Probably the most that can or needs to be said is that, from the Theravada point of view, the Buddha is the perfect embodiment of the Dhamma. His effort in speaking in these minimalist ways seems designed to meet two purposes. Firstly, to reflect the ultimately non-personal and indefinable nature of ultimate reality. Secondly, and principally, to awaken in the minds of his listeners the insight which is holy and liberating. Another related and well-known example of the Buddha's teachings on this area is found in the Itivuttaka. So this is the other one that uh, informed Ajahn Chah's uh, responses. So uh, this is um, Sutta number 92 in the Itivuttaka. This was said by the Lord. Bhikkhus, even though a bhikkhu might hold on to the hem of my robe, and follow closely behind me step by step, if he is covetous for objects of desire, strongly passionate, malevolent, corrupt in thought, unmindful, uncomprehending, unconcentrated, of wandering mind and uncontrolled faculties, he is far from me and I am far from him. What is the reason? 
That bhikkhu does not see Dhamma. Not seeing Dhamma, he does not see me. Because even though a bhikkhu might live a hundred leagues away, 300 miles, if he is not covetous for objects of desire, not strongly passionate, not malevolent, not corrupt in thought, with mindfulness established, clearly comprehending, concentrated, a unified mind and controlled faculties, he is close to me and I am close to him. What is the reason? That bhikkhu sees Dhamma. Seeing Dhamma, he sees me. So this is the kind of thing that Lumpur Cha would say when people say, can I come and live here at Wat Bapong Lumpur? Say, ah. <laughs> say yeah. why do you need to be near me? You know, you want to hang on to my robe? And, well, what's the point of that? You know? And so there would be a, a very good reason to say, no, you have to go off to Suang Glue, or you can go and live with uh, Ajahn Kun in Chiang Rai, or you can go and stay with Ajahn Tui down in Ayutthaya. So that, um, particularly if he thought that there's that, but I want to be near you, Lumpur. If he saw that kind of stickiness, then that's a, a guaranteed way to, well, not guaranteed, but highly likely to get you sent off to the remote provinces. But it's, it's also a, an imp- a very important principle to, uh, to understand. And, that, and the Buddha is very, uh, very gifted at creating these um, uh, compelling and tangible images. So like literally sort of hanging onto the edge of the Buddha's robe. You couldn't get much closer hanging onto the edge of the hem of the, of the robe. And the suit is called the hem, of, the hem of the robe. You couldn't get much closer. But he's saying, you know, if your heart is, is uh, and this wonderful list of confusions, you maybe thought he was talking about you. <laughs> Covetous for objects of desire, strongly passionate, malevolent, corrupt in thought, unmindful, uncomprehending, unconcentrated, of wandering mind and uncontrolled faculties. So that, um, again, he can't lie, but he's saying that if you're even hanging on to the edge of his robe and that's where your mind is, you are far, he says, you are far from him and I'm far from you. And that, uh, that, so that the physical presence of the teacher is not it. And um, again, there's a lot of of mythology or um, Sort of tradition around drawing close to the teacher, and again, there's other there's other suttas that talk about the benefit of, of spending time with wise people. But if um, if the if the teacher recognizes that this person's just attached to the the personality or to the kind of buzz they get from being around the the guru, then uh, a good teacher will say, yeah. <laughs> after Cheng Rai, or you need to go to Scotland. Or, yeah. <laughs> I think. Uh, why don't you go to the Italian monastery for a spell? Go to New Hampshire and shovel snow. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? There's a, there's a similar story about, <coughs> sorry, about Rahuna, isn't there, in the Buddha? Because Rahuna was very, correct me, he was very. Um, Proud of being the Buddha's son, mm-hmm. and uh, found him very beautiful to look at, and so on, and follow him around. And the Buddha told him off, and told him to go away. <laughs> yeah, he they're on arms round, and uh, and uh, let's see if I can find it. It's in the I have it right here. Uh, the um, uh, Rahula's a, a novice at that point. I think he's um. 
he's a uh, following along behind the Buddha on arms round. Let's see if we can find it. Yeah, I think this is 62. Yeah, it's a very good example, actually. So, <clears throat> One occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, in Atapindika's Park. Then, when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, he went into Savati for alms. The Venerable Rahula also dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, he followed close behind the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One looked back and addressed the Venerable Rahula thus, Rahula, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And uh, the, the, it doesn't, so he doesn't actually say it, um, what he was thinking, but in the, the commentary, the, uh, the to that why the Buddha would just suddenly stop in his tracks and turn around and say that to his son <laughs> Rahula was um, so the commentary to the Majima to the Sutta says while Rahula was following the Buddha he noted with admiration the physical perfection of the master and reflected that he himself was of similar appearance thinking I too am handsome like my father the blessed one the Buddha's form is beautiful, and so too is mine. The Buddha read Rahula's thought and decided to admonish him at once, before such vain thoughts led him into greater difficulties. Hence the Buddha framed his advice in terms of contemplating the body as neither a self nor possession of the self. So then the Venerable Rahula, considering thus, who would go into town for alms today when personally admonished by the Blessed One? So then he turned back and sat down at the root of a tree, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect, establishing mindfulness before him. Then Venerable Sariputta saw him sitting there and addressed him thus, Rahula, develop mindfulness of breathing, and so on. So then, yeah, Sariputta sees, oh, yeah. <laughs> Rahula's missing the meal today, and uh, goes to give him instruction under the tree, and uh, so on. Well, uh, it was an interesting comment that um, Venerable Ananda Maitreya made, um, because there's this this kind of uh, uh, perception that oh, it's just in the commentaries, oh, it's all just made up. Um, uh, but uh, his uh, uh, he had a very interesting comment to make. He was a very um, knowledge, a very knowledgeable and accomplished uh, elder Sri Lankan monk. He spent his seventieth rains retreat here at Amravati. So he had more rains than all the other monks put together. His attendant was senior to Ajahn Sumedho. So, <laughs> so uh, he, he, he had 70 rains. Uh, it was his nine, he was 90 years old when he came and spent the... 1986 he spent the rains here. Uh, 
And so he made this interesting comment because also uh, we uh, in the West we can be very kind of glib and say, oh, it's just the commentaries, ah, it's just not not real the real word of the Buddha. But the point he made was that there's many of the the the, um, the things that appear in the commentaries that was a uh, oral folklore that was handed down that the suttas and the vinaya were like, this was the sort of essential teachings, uh, and so that was all very carefully remembered and recited and. And passed on, but he said most of the commentaries was just like the stories that people told and passed from one generation to another that were not formalized, but they he said they they are very reliable in in many respects. So he said yeah, you shouldn't just they shouldn't just be dismissed because it was like the sort of informal folklore and stories of how how things came about. So that uh, that was his take on it. And so he he also was very he spoke thirteen or fourteen different languages. He could recite whole books of the of the the Pali as well. He could speak in Pali, converse in Pali, and uh, um, also he didn't. He said he didn't have any particular memories himself, but he was told that um, he had been the tree spirit of the Bodhi tree when the Buddha was enlightened. He looked kind of woody. <laughs> he had this sort of. <coughs> Rather like uh, Venerable Tita Dhammo, you know, Tita Dhammo is this kind of um, uh, yeah, very sort of um, earthy but uh, of uh, mysterious uh, aura to him. Anyway, that's why he said that he was told that he'd been the, the Rukadeva of the Bodhi tree when the Buddha was enlightened, which would give you a certain connection to the, <laughs> the teaching and the tradition. But uh, anyway, I, that, that, rang a, that rang true for me because there, is, there are so many things. That comes through in the commentaries that, that uh, uh, having lived in monastic communities for all these years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, could I ask you a quick question? Like the, uh, uh, before Sarputra Sa- uh, asked Madhu uh, Ravana to uh, do uh, mindfulness of breathing one day, mm-hmm. uh, it said that he established his mindfulness in front of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you want to understand what that means? Like, what can you do? Like, what's like establishing your mindfulness in front of you? It's it's uh, my understanding. It's just an expression. I mean, some people say what this means is you concentrate on a point, you know, twenty centimeters in front of you, which is, uh, I think that's nonsense myself. It's just an expression meaning you um, you pay attention. It's like uh, uh, it's like you um, like when you. We use in the English expression "paying attention." You're not paying any money, but it's a, the, the 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 way that we put the words together to to uh, describe that particular attitude. So, to me, the, the Pali expression establishing you know, mindfulness before them is or in front of them. It's just a way of uh, that we. It's just a, like a Pali expression. So uh, it, it doesn't mean there's a particular spot. In space that's so far from your nose that you're, you're, you're looking at. I think in um, in uh, last year when we had the readings from the Bhikkhu Analyo's commentary on the Satipatthana, he talks about that, and uh, if I remember correctly, and he says you know, there are various different um, writers and scholars that say what it means is this, and but I think it's just a um, a kind of reading too much into a, into an expression, you know, or taking an expression, you know, too literally. Like if you're familiar with the the film The Life of Brian, Monty Python film, 
it's a, it's a very um, a very significant commentary on religious traditions <laughs> and particularly on, there's a, uh, on projection and so there's this scene in early on in the film where the their the people are gathered together listening to Jesus giving the sermon on the mount and so <clears throat> and in the in the sermon on the mount uh, Jesus says uh, blessed are the peacemakers but this little group of people are standing way at the back and they can't quite hear. And so and so one of them says, Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> and then the person next to him says, Well, of course, when he says cheesemakers, he's really referring to everybody in the dairy industry. <laughs> so, and it's, it's kind of, it's funny, but it's also not, it's just like it's a joke, but it's not a joke because people, like they've misheard it. And you've already got someone making a commentary on it, even though it's misheard. It's like a misinterpretation, but someone's already kind of saying, well, what he means is you know, anybody in the dairy industry. And so you, you get quite a lot of that in the, uh, in the religious traditions. And so you get people making um, comments or interpretations way on things that, uh, like a turn of phrase. And it was also Venerable Ananda Maitreya was, was um, he was very uh, helpful in pointing out, he said, there's a lot of humor in the Pali Canon. There's a lot of like double meanings and kind of jokes, uh, of plays on words. So he said, many of the early, uh, the early Buddhist scholars in translating into German or English that they miss it completely because they, they don't know the language that well. They, they know Pali, but he said if, if you know Indian folklore, you know the other Indian languages like Sanskrit and Hindi and uh, so forth, then you get the joke. So he said, uh, uh, and he would t he told us a number of things that that uh, say that they um, that are, are missed because the the uh, the people there they're quite knowledgeable like I B Horner or Rhys Davids. The, the, they they know the Pali, but they don't get the the, um, the 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 kind of suggestions or the the puns or the double meanings, and it was quite, <clears throat> and so that where um, you have like Professor Rhys Davids or I B Horn or one of these other scholars, you know, going into a long explanation of why the Buddha uses a particular term or uses a certain phrase, then it, what the and Venerable Ananda Matre would say, well, actually. He used that because it's a it's a kind of it's a joke it's a it's a pun. He's a whole series of he's actually saying a lot of you know a whole string of really insulting things about Brahmins, or he's teasing this monk because he's lustful, and he's using a whole string of analogies to to kind of poke fun at the, this this person who's um, kind of addicted to to lustful thinking and is trying to justify their their lustful habits. And he said, but. Uh, if you try, if you translate it all literally, you you, you miss it. And there's a, uh, I haven't got the the reference here, um, but there's one uh, <coughs> there's one um, verse in Bhikkhu Bodhi pointed this out to me that there's a particular verse in the uh, in the Dhammapada where you can um, <coughs> You can translate. There's a whole set of, of puns that the Buddha uses, so that you can uh, you can translate it as um, you know, one one who is enlightened uh, has abandoned attachment to all sense desire, and uh, they have um, completely you know, let go of of the world and uh, transcended suffering, something like that. 
He said, if you, if you translate, there's a whole string of words that he uses, you can translate in different ways. And he says, um, uh, yeah, one who is attached is a supreme burglar. And it, and it's like a dog that eats its own vomit. And and he points out you know, each of these words. And so it's like both praising the arahant, but also talking about the 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 uh, the, the kind of deluded person in very kind of um, shocking uh, or kind of um, graphic ways. But uh, the if you don't know the the, the 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 Pali well enough, you miss all those double meanings. And it's a kind of um, uh, uh, a, a sort of a a subtle aspect of the teaching that many of the early translators have, have missed out on. So that when you get a phrase like placing mindfulness before before you, it's uh, that people take it literally. And say, well, when he says before you, it means between 20 and 25 centimeters in front of the nose. <laughs> but it's rather like blessed are the cheesemakers. It's like, well, saying before you is just a say, you know, like be mindful. That's all it means. So, to continue. So this is, um, the next passage is from the very, very last section of the Sutta Nipata, which is um, a uh, poetic um, collection of teachings. And so this is um, what the, the, the last section of the, uh, uh, the Sutta Nipata is called The Way to the Beyond. And uh, there's uh, 16 Brahmin students have, have come to the Buddha and have asked questions. And this is a really wonderful um, collection of teachings that, that the Buddha gives. And to each of these um, young students, that he, he answers their questions and gives a very good responses. Uh, this is a translation done by Venerable Dr. Saratisa, who was a, the abbot of the uh, London Buddhist Sihara for many years. Again, a very accomplished Pali scholar. He... He prepared this text when he was teaching Buddhism uh, at the University of Toronto in Canada. So he put it into very readable English. So it it flows a lot more um, uh, uh, kind of eloquently than much of the uh, the uh, Pali sort of very literal translations. So it's not a very literal translation; it's more of a rendering. But he was uh, very accomplished in his in his Pali, so it's accurate. But it's just uh, sort of put into a little bit more of a liberal translation than you, you generally get with uh, more sort of formal um, uh, sutta works. So um, this was, um, I think, done in the early uh, late eighties or early nineties. This was translated. This was the, this was published. So this is uh, Pingya, who was the last of the Brahmin students, speaking um, in praise of this whole collection of teachings that the Buddha had, had given, and uh, uh, and he's been asked. By this uh, other Brahmin called Bavari, you know, why does you know you're well, you're a Brahmin? How come you're so enthusiastic about this this Buddha? Uh, uh, you know, what's what's so special about him? And so this is Pingya speaking about uh, why he is so, so inspired by the Buddha. They call him Buddha, enlightened, awake, dissolving darkness with total vision, and knowing the world to its ends. He has gone beyond all states of being and of becoming. He has no inner poison drives. He is the total elimination of suffering. This man, Brahmin Bhavari, is the man I follow. It's like a bird that leaves the bushes of the scrubland and flies to the fruit trees of the forest. 
I too have left the bleary half-light of opinions. Like a swan, I have reached a great lake. Up till now, before I heard Gautama's teaching, people had always told me this. This is how it's always been. This is how it always will be. Only the constant refrain of tradition, a breeding ground for speculation. This prince, this beam of light, Gotama, was the only one who dissolved the darkness. This man, Gotama, is a universe of wisdom and a world of understanding. A teacher whose Dhamma is the way things are, instant, immediate and visible all round, eroding desire without harmful side effects, with nothing else quite like it anywhere in the world. But Pinkia, said Bhavari, why then don't you spend all your time, your every moment, with this man Gotama, this universe of wisdom, and so on and so forth, with nothing else like it anywhere in the world? Brahmin, sir, said Pingya, there is no moment for me, however small, that is spent away from Gotama, from this universe of wisdom, with nothing else quite like it anywhere in the world. I cannot now move away from the teaching of Gotama. The powers of confidence and joy, of intellect and awareness, Hold me there. Whichever way this universe of wisdom goes, it draws me with it. So I highly, uh, highly recommend this um, teaching. I'm sure we've got copies in the, in the library. It's just called the Sutanipata, um, Dr. Saratisa's translation. The more literal translations of the Sutanipata, uh, some of them done by, again by my esteemed relative, Ivy Horner, <laughs> and other scholars, are, uh, can be uh, unreadable. They're sort of accurate Pali, but really hard to to follow and uh, not. Um, uh, they're sort of trying to be so true to the word that they not only miss the poetry, but they make the the meaning hard to to follow. So I really like uh, Dr. Saratisa's work insofar as it's very very accessible and um, carries the the meaning very very clearly. In that. Returning to the theme of unapprehendability, one who has reached the end of the spiritual path is said to be indescribable because they no longer identify with any of the customary things by which they may be described. Thus, they cannot be measured by them either. So uh, again, uh, they have this the same um, aspect in this comments of, of uh, Pingya when his friend Bhavari says, well, why don't you just spend all your time with this, uh, with the Buddha? And uh, Pingya says, well, I'm never really apart from him. You know, the faith ha has arisen. So um, uh, it's, uh, I'm in, a in essence, always in the presence of the, the, the teacher. So this uh, next passage is from the Sanyutanikaya, again from section 22, which is the, um, the connected discourses on the five khandhas. And the, uh, the Buddha is speaking. Bhikkhu. If one has an underlying tendency towards something, then one is measured in accordance with it. If one is measured in accordance with something, then one will be reckoned in terms of it. If one does not have an underlying tendency towards something, then one is not measured in accordance with it. If one is not measured in accordance with something, then one will not be reckoned in terms of it. If one has any underlying tendency towards material form, feeling, perception, 
mental formations or consciousness of the five khandhas, then one will be measured in accordance with it. If one is measured in accordance with it, then one will be reckoned in terms of it. If one has no underlying tendency towards material form, feeling, perception, mental formations or consciousness, then one will not be measured in accordance with it. If one is not measured in accordance with it, then one will not be reckoned in terms of it. And so this, this uh, term reckoning or measuring, it's like, say, judging like, I am tall, I am short, I am a man, I am old, I am young, I am English, I am a Theravadan, I am a Buddhist, I am a human. All those are reckonings of the way that, that we, we, me, we define ourselves. Uh, old, young, tall, short, female, male. Um, these are ways that we define what we are, or our livelihood, or our, our um, state of health, or our mood. You know, that those are all reckonings, that how we define what we are, or who we are. And so this is all talking about, well, those are all just convenient fictions um, that, that are used. But uh, uh, that uh, when the mind does not identify with the five khandhas, then those kind of reckonings don't apply. Then there's a, 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 a quote, the next one is a quote from the Greater Discourse on Questions and Answers. So this is a dialogue between Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahakotita. So Mahakotita is asking the questions and Venerable Sariputta uh, answers. And so, um, actually, let's... this dialogue has begun. Well, there's a lot of other questions. But this is right at the end of it, actually. And so, uh, the Venerable Mahakutita says, Friend, the immeasurable deliverance of mind, the deliverance of mind through nothingness, that's akinshana, so uh, immeasurable is uh, apamana, or apamanya, and that's like the four Brahma-viharas. So the immeasurable deliverance of mind, the deliver deliverance of mind through nothing nothingness, akinshana, the deliverance of mind through voidness, sunyata, and the signless deliverance of mind, animita. Are these states different in meaning and different in name, or are they one in meaning and different in name only? And the Venerable Sariputta replies, Friend, the immeasurable deliverance of mind, the deliverance of mind through nothingness, deliverance of mind through voidness, and the signless deliverance of mind, there is a way in which these states are different in meaning and different in name, and there's a way in which they are one in meaning and different in name only. And what, friend, is the way in which these states are different in meaning and different in name? And then he describes that the um, meditation on the four Brahma-viharas, um, on loving-kindness, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, and uh, equanimity, um, abiding, uh, pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, compassion, uh, gladness, and uh, equanimity. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, or below, and all around, etc. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. This is called the immeasurable deliverance of mind. And what, friend, is a deliverance of mind through nothingness? So this is one of the... The sphere of nothingness is one of the refined states of concentration, the arupajanas. Here, with the complete surmounting of the base of infinite consciousness, aware that there is nothing, 
a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the base of nothingness. This is called the deliverance of mind through nothingness. And what, friend, is the deliverance of mind through voidness, sunyatana? Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or an empty hut, reflects thus, this is void of a self or of what belongs to a self. This is called the deliverance of mind through voidness. So that uh, the, the uh, nothingness is like the object is completely um, uh, without form and, and there's no thing there. And then the other kind, sunyata, is about subject that is empty of self and what belongs to a self. And then the last one, so and they're, they're, those first three, they are kind of exalted states of mind, but they're not totally liberated, they're not states of enlightenment. And the fourth one is called the animita. And what, friend, is the signless deliverance of mind? Here, with non-attention to all signs, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the signless concentration of mind, the animita samadhi. This is called the signless deliverance of mind. This is the way in which these states are different in meaning and different in name. And then this uh, animita samadhi, this is, uh, um, in, again, in the commentary, <laughs> it says this uh, is referring to the deliverance of mind that arises with enlightenment. So it's to do with the, the fruition of, uh, of enlightenment. And the other, the first three, are uh, still conditioned states. And what, friend, is the way in which these states are one in meaning and different only in name? And then this is the, the, the passage that we get from the, the quote here in the island. Lust is a maker of measurement. Hate is a maker of measurement. Delusion is a maker of measurement. And that the Pali for that is a Pamana, uh, Pamana Karana. He's a maker of measurement. In a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed, these are abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Of all the kinds of immeasurable deliverance of mind, the unshakable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. Now that unshakable deliverance of mind is void of lust, void of hate, and void of delusion. Then, just to complete the quote, then when he's addressing the um, uh, both the uh, sphere of nothingness and also sunyata, the, uh, the deliverance through voidness, Lust is a something, hate is a something, delusion is a something. In a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed, these are abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Of all the kinds of deliverance of mind through nothingness, the unshakable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. Now the unshakable deliverance of mind is void of lust, void of hate, void of delusion. Lust is a maker of signs, hate is a maker of signs, delusion is a maker of signs. In a bhikkhu's taints are destroyed, these are abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Of all the kinds of signless deliverance of mind, the unshakable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. Now that unshakable deliverance of mind is void of lust, void of hate, void of delusion. This is the way in which these states are one in meaning and different only in name. This is what the Venerable Sariputta said. The Venerable Mahakotita was satisfied and delighted in the Venerable Sariputta's words. So that uh, might come across as a little bit dense, and we probably don't lose a lot of sleep about trying to work out the difference between signlessness, voidness, and, and nothingness. Maybe you do. 
But um, within the context of, of this, then in terms of our practice, just to, to notice how much we, we measure things. We define what we are by how old we are, or whether we are um, a success or a failure, whether we're uncomfortable or uncomfortable, or hot or cold, or happy or unhappy, or a, uh, a woman or a man, a monastic, a layperson, an agarika, you know, the, the thousand ways that we define ourselves, rich, poor, um, succeeding, failing, beginning, ending, um, all the different moods, the different physical qualities, the different mental qualities, these are all ways that we reckon ourselves, we define I am this. And so that it's these teachings are about recognizing, well that's just, you know, greed is a maker of measurement, delusion is a maker of measurement, aversion is a maker of measurement. The one whose heart is utterly pure, these are abandoned, cut off at the root. So there's that, oh look, this is the mind defining me, it's, it's creating a judgment, it's saying, oh this is true. And uh, a very simple way of of reflecting upon this, um, uh, Ajahn Chah, as we uh, hear over and over again, was a, a, a kind of spiritual genius of simplifying and clarifying principles. So whenever the mind makes those kind of judgments, measurements and, and de definitions, if you just ask uh, the question, is that so? That's all it takes. You have to remember to do it. <laughs> But I am this, you know, I'm a success, is that so? I'm a failure, is that so? You know, I'm a man, is that so? I'm a woman, is that so? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a monk, is that so? I want to be a monk, is that so? I don't want to be a monk, is that so? And just by picking it up and asking that kind of a question, it shines that light on, oh, this is a judgment. Greed, hatred, delusion, these are what you know, make that, that measurement and Dhamma itself, the fundamental reality of things, is, is non-measurable. Measurement does not apply. Reckoning does not apply. And so this kind of phrase of is abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump. And a palm tree, when you chop the top off, it can't grow anymore. It grows from the top. So that that's the, uh, there's this kind of finished, done, over, <coughs> broken. <laughs> the bridge is down. That there's that kind of finality. Um, <coughs> So it's a it's a very helpful reflection in meditation as it, the the mind comes out. Oh, I'm really falling apart. My practice is all over the place. Is that so? Oh, things are really coming together. This is great. Is that so? I'm really in the, I'm, at last. I'm in the right place. This is just the thing I need. Is that so? I'm really in the wrong place. I'm really, these people are weird. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't belong here. Is that so? So that. It's a, a, a very simple and direct application of this. And if you pay attention, if you start your day in morning meditation, how many times today will my mind create a judgment, will, will create that kind of a reckoning? And even if it's not judging ourselves, judging other people, like, he's really awful, oh, she's great, but I can't stand her. In exactly the same way that we judge each other, our, our friends, family members, people we work with, people in the government, and people who want to be in the government, etc., <laughs> etc. Et you know, we we create this, these measurements, these judgments, we, these definitions, and so this a very very simple and direct way of meeting that, just to say, is that so? And even more simple than that, if you, you think that's pretty simple. So, is that so? 
just to say so this is great uh, this is everything's really coming together so it's, it's, this is I'm a mess I'm incurable this is completely uh, completely screwed up and it's not re- it's not repairable so oh yeah and something in the heart goes oh yeah right that's not the whole story how could that be everything and so it, these simple ways of uh, Developing wise reflection, bring that into focus. Because if we if we don't, we just believe what our mind says. It makes a judgment, defines this is good, this is bad, this is coming together, this is falling apart. This is somewhere in the middle. Some I'm not quite sure what this is. So <laughs> it it sustains that quality of the clarity, and the, and the heart recognizes that the wisdom faculty recognizes that. And then when that recognition happens, there's this, oh, there's this quality of, of, uh, of attuning to the present and letting go of the constructions, the complications, the fixations that the mind creates around that. So I will leave it there for this evening, I think. Yes, let's leave it there.